Welcome to the EcoCiv podcast. This is Austin Roberts. At EcoCiv, we are working internationally to support systemic approaches to long-term sustainability by developing collaborations among government, business, and religious leaders, and among scholars, activists, and policymakers. On this podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the types of transformations required to move toward a more sustainable, peaceful, and equitable world. You can check out our website at ecociv.org for more information. And if you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing at Ecociv by making a donation at our website. For this week's episode, Ecociv's Executive Vice President, Andrew Schwartz, speaks with Jeremy Lint, who is a writer and public intellectual. He is the author of the award-winning book, The Patterning Instinct, which traces how different cultures patterned meaning into the universe and how that has affected history. Guardian journalist George Monbiot called it the most profound and far-reaching book he'd ever read. Jeremy is also the founder of the nonprofit Leology Institute, which aims to foster a worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably, integrating modern system science, traditional East Asian spirituality, and an ecological sensibility. He has a fantastic blog at PatternsOfMeaning.com, where he recently wrote a critique of Yuval Harari's ideas about modern civilization and another of Steven Pinker's views on human progress. In this conversation, Andrew talks to Jeremy about how modern patterns of thought drive the global environmental crisis and about the urgent need for worldviews that enable the formation of sustainable societies. They also talk about the notion of cognitive frames, geoengineering schemes, neoliberalism, ecological civilization, and why he embraces hope without optimism. And now, here's Jeremy and Andrew. I'm with Jeremy Lind, a renowned author, social entrepreneur, and public intellectual. And uh, welcome, Jeremy. Thank you so much. And it's great to be here with you today. Now, your current work, um, among other things, includes investigating the patterns of thought that have led civilization to its current crisis of sustainability. Um, and that seems like there's a lot, of, lot to unpack there. Um, so can you elaborate on this current crisis as you see it? Yes, for sure. You know, so many of us who are concerned about what's going on uh, around us in the world today, you know, get to focus a lot on some of the obvious fixes that we need to do and that we needed to do, obviously, uh, yesterday, not today, but it's still not being done, whether it's investing in um, renewables or just even um, bigger things like changing economic structures of how um, of our sort of growth-oriented economy and all those things, so important, so profound. But something that I discovered uh, in a lot of research I did over the years that um, led to this book I wrote called The Patterning Instinct, which is like a, a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning, is that actually you, have to, you can go layer by layer and you begin to recognize that what we need to change is not just those things that are more visible, but with the underlying foundations of the ways in which we get meaning from our lives that actually uh, lead to ways of thinking that cause um, these kind of destructive behaviors that we know so well to be naturally 
and then logically um, implied from those underlying foundations. So we have to look at those very deep layers and recognize them in order to be able to change them. And ultimately, for a truly sustainable path forward, we have to change those very foundations. So say a little more about the, these foundations that need changed. Um, you know, it sounds like th these are really what you would say are the underlying causes of our crisis, of our, of our world's most critical yes. problems. Yeah, sure. Well, so it turns out that if you look at just any civilizations or even any cultures through history, the ways in which they, their values arise um, come from what you might think of as a kind of root metaphors or like these kind of core ways of looking at nature, looking at the human relation with nature. Um, and we sort of get this, this uh, sense of a metaphor because obviously there's no one reality, but we kind of simplify it in terms of a, a metaphor. And then we begin to build our value structures based on that. So the modern worldview uh, is really based on a couple of these core foundational metaphors of nature. One is um, this notion of nature as a machine, which is so ingrained in how people think that many people in today's world just take that as a given and, and, uh, and then make sense of things from there. <clears throat> and another one uh, that we also take for granted in many of the things that we do is this notion of um, humans' role to conquer nature and conquering nature being one of the sort of great missions, if you will, of the human project. And these two uh, core metaphors, a way of thinking about nature, um, actually have only been around in, in human thought for the last few hundred years since the scientific revolution and are very unusual compared to any other ways in which cultures have made sense of nature um, at other times in other places. But we have to recognize those and see how those kind of inveigle themselves through so many um, assumptions and behaviors if we really want to shift where we're headed. Now, you had mentioned your uh, award-winning book, I'll add, uh, the, the Patterning Instinct, uh, Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And in that book, you argue, among other things, that I think the quote is, culture shapes values and those values shape history. So can you say a little bit more about this interplay between values, culture, and this history of civilizations? Yes. And um, it's hard sometimes, especially, you know, when we're looking at so many urgent um, things that we have to get moving on right away, uh, to look at some of these notions of culture and values and go, well, I'm sorry, we don't even have time to think about these kind of um, niceties. We've got to look at action and what, and what people are actually doing and change that. And I agree that we need to look at action and change that. But what is so important is to realize that the different um, values that a society has actually shape the, the norms and the behaviors that they do, which, which have really fundamentally changed history. And I'll, I'll give you an example that I use in my book of what I mean by that. So, you know, we've talked about how this modern Western way of thinking is based on this idea of conquering nature um, and this a real sense of, the, um, of sort of conquest and, and domination as being um, sort of a natural role for humanity. Now, in contrast to this, in traditional Chinese thought, they saw nature and the human relation with nature totally differently. They saw nature as more like a kind of harmonic web of life. 
And on that basis, they saw the ways in which humans relate to nature and everything around them as being to sort of maintain harmony. Like if you think of nature as being a web, you don't want to go around breaking and disrupting it because, well, you'll kind of fall, fall out of it yourself. And so it's about sort of how can you harmonize with all these things around you in a way that keeps things stable. Um, now, okay, so with that understanding, we can look back at this, these really interesting divergence of different things that took place all the way back in the 15th century. So we all know that you know, Christopher Columbus discovered the New World in 1492, and the, really like the history of um, the modern world began at, from that time with a conquest of, of the Americas. And some historians, um, in fact, a lot of mainstream historians today think that, well, the only reason that Europe got to be advanced and China um, didn't for those hundreds of years is because Europe got there first to the new world. So that's what you meant to do is kind of conquer whatever you find and, and uh, dominate it and um, take advantage of it. But what's so interesting is that that same century, um, actually the 15th century, decades before Columbus set sail with his three tiny little boats to the new world, there was this admiral in China called Admiral Joan who had this massive fleet of 300 huge ships, so big that you could have fit 10 of Columbus's into one of Jones' boats. So he had this, this fleet with something like 30,000 people with which he dominated for decades, the Indian Ocean. He went down to like East Africa. Um, he'd go to uh, places like the Middle East, uh, Sri Lanka. And if he'd wanted to, he could have done what Columbus did with the New World, but a thousand times over, he could have just dominated, created this massive Chinese empire um, and, you know, mined the, um, the, um, the lands for gold and silver, enslaved the populations in Africa. But he didn't do any of that. And fundamentally, the reason he didn't is that it didn't even occur to him to disrupt and plunder the way that the European mindset was. In fact, what he did when he went there um, to these other places, he had so much power Oftentimes, the cities he'd land at would have fewer people than the number of people he had in his armada. But instead of, of demolishing them, he would say, who's the prince? And he would um, negotiate with the prince and ask to take one of the, the, prince, the, the sort of leading people back to China so they could kowtow to the emperor and establish trade relationships and kind of basically police the whole area. So that shows you how history itself has arisen from these different viewpoints that the Europeans had this notion of domination and conquest as fundamental to their worldview, to their values. That led to history as we know it the last few hundred years. The Chinese had a very different view, a more harmonious view of the natural world and human relation to that. And it didn't even occur to them to disrupt things in the way that the Europeans did. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Some of your distinctive work is around this uh, importance of, of cognitive frames. And you, uh, I think it was in the spirit of exploring cognitive frames and, and worldviews that you founded a nonprofit, uh, Leology Institute, correct? Right, exactly. Uh, with, with, if I understand correctly, it's, it's with the aim of fostering a worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably, the very thing we're talking about right now. Exactly, exactly. Because I think that that's the only way in which we'll really find ourselves on a long-term sustainable path is to really um, base that on a different kind of worldview, a different way of making sense of the universe, really. What exactly is a, a cognitive frame and why does it matter? Yeah, so 
Um, so that notion we were talking about earlier, this kind of idea of root metaphors, is a good way of um, giving, getting a sense of what a cognitive frame is. <clears throat> and maybe we should sort of back up one, one more step to understand that, is that, you know, we, we tend to think of um, abstract ideas that we have, like um, things like whether it could be God or um, goodness or um, transcendence, any kind of abstract ideas there might be, we sort of think of them as being like disembodied, you know, these kind of abstract notions that, that are out there. And in the last few decades, um, there's been amazing work done uh, primarily by a cognitive linguist called George Lakoff. Um, and since, since his groundbreaking work, there's a really a whole discipline has been established of what's called cognitive linguistics, which starts from the basis of realizing that all the abstract ideas that we humans have come from our embodied experience. So, um, in fact, you know, as, as infants, we have this sense of uh, core of scaffolding, if you will, of everything that we make sense of. There's warm and there's cold. There's high and there's low. There's near and there's far. There's um, painful and there's comfort. And all these, all these things. And that's what we know as our reality. And when we start to kind of abstract, we actually use those core embodied ways of being um, to build essentially a scaffolding for our abstractions. So I might say for you something like um, I, somebody I met yesterday and she gave me a warm smile. And actually, she didn't actually give me anything. And, and when she smiled at me, it wasn't really warm. It wasn't like the temperature in the room went up when, um, when she smiled. But I used these kind of embodied and um, scaffolding ideas in order to come up with these concepts. And we really can't, as humans, talk more than a couple of sentences without using these, these metaphors. And the reason why that becomes so important is because the, those foundational metaphors cause and these frames by which we make meaning out of the rest of the world. So we've already looked at how, for example, in traditional China, they saw um, this frame um, or this cognitive frame of nature as being this web, um, like a spider's web, like this where everything is connected. And so from that, once you start to see things in that frame, you begin to um, look at things in a certain way. So if somebody comes along and says this idea that we should conquer nature, a traditional Chinese person would have said, well, what do you even mean by that? Like, you know, how do you conquer a web? Like where we need to harmonize with it. That's, that's where we are. Like another example is um, traditional hunter-gatherers. And of course, as humans, we spend more than 95% of our history as nomadic hunter-gatherers just um, in small bands going around the world. They saw everything in nature as being really part of their family. So for them... Uh, their embodied um, scaffolding came from their small band that they were with and everyone was kind of extended family. And that's, that's, that's the way they understood um, how you are with others. And that's, they, they used that as a way to understand the natural world. So to them, all of nature was filled with spirits and all those spirits were, part, were basically relatives, the trees, um, the ponds, the water, every, everything was basically part of the same family. And they saw nature itself as being really like a generous parent, like a sort of mother or father figure that we're giving to them. So when they'd go into, um, into the forest, 
they'd have this kind of intimate way of relating to nature. They wouldn't see it as filled with these scary deities, but it would be more like um, these uh, relatives that you kind of be friendly with, you talk to them. And if they killed an animal um, for food, they would honor that. And they'd, they'd recognize that they'd see spirits as always transforming so that um, they recognize that their spirit was human one time and maybe an animal um, after it's transformed into something else. So everything would be kind of honored. And that would, that would really give them a frame for how they made sense of all of nature and all their activities and their values around them. So that's an example of another kind of cognitive frame. Um, and how we frame things um, changes how the behaviors we do. So in our modern world, by contrast, if we think of nature as a machine, well, then when we look at something like uh, global climate breakdown and people um, say, well, wow, we, we're like creating these imbalances because we've got too much uh, carbon dioxide because of the greenhouse gas effect. So it becomes very natural then for people to say, well, what we do, we need to re-engineer nature. Since nature is a machine, and it's like it's an engineering problem that's kind of gone out of whack a little bit. So we have to, let's come up with geoengineering. If we've caused too much greenhouse effects, let's start to look at putting, like, say, sulfur dioxide um, molecules up into the, um, uh, into the stratosphere to reflect so we can have the, um, the opposite of the greenhouse effect and sort of reflect back the um, sun's rays. And so that's the idea, that kind of shows how a frame of thinking leads to the ways in which you come up with behaviors. So then when people, even when people argue against geoengineering, most of the time they don't even disagree about the frame. They just say, well, it's dangerous because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen for this or that, or there are political reasons why you, but they, they accept the frame that nature is something to be engineered. Whereas if we look at it from a different frame of nature as being basically this thing of intrinsic worth and us being part of nature, then you begin to say, well, if things are out of balance, maybe we need to change the, um, the systems that have caused these imbalances, find a place to be back in harmony with nature rather than try to engineer this as, as if it's this engineering problem. So how do we develop worldviews? Are they simply inherited? Uh, are they learned somehow? I, I raise this question because I'm curious about your insights on how we would then go about changing our modern world. Yeah, I think that's a really important, profound question uh, to ask about it. Basically, worldviews can be very, very, very conservative, meaning that once they're kind of entrenched in a culture, it's really hard to change them. Um, and in fact, worldviews can exist for millennia um, without uh, something happening to make that change. And so when, when we look in history at, at what's actually caused worldviews to change, you actually um, get a, what a, you can think of as both exogenous or endogenous variables that have, that have caused these shifts. And they've been very few and far between. So... Um, like an example of an exogenous variable um, is when something happens to change the reality um, so that you actually begin to um, live life in a different way and start to see things in, in a different way. So exogenous means like it's sort of externally driven, if you will. So if you look at the shift from that hunter-gatherer worldview we were just talking about a few minutes ago, to the agrarian worldview that arose just about 12,000 
years or so ago. And that gives you an example of a kind of an exogenous variable in the sense that um, hunter-gatherers didn't uh, start saying, oh, we should look at the world in this different way and look at us being separate from nature and start to uh, cultivate crops. But what actually happened is through various processes that we don't, won't go into in detail now because it's kind of too complex, but basically kind of self-organized ratchet effects caused um, humans to start to um, find that they, they, the crops that they were used to just picking in the wild, they started to have to cultivate more. Or for example, they would um, naturally uh, find themselves close to animals that were tamer. And over generations, those tamer animals became essentially so tame that the humans had to uh, keep them safe from the wild animals around them. So they became the cultivated uh, um, like domesticated animals that we're used to nowadays, like cows, um, dogs, etc. Um, but as a result of this, humans began to find themselves more and more separate from, from the rest of the natural world. And as a result of that, inequalities began to develop in human society. So a new worldview arose from that of nature um, as the, sort of formed this hierarchy of the gods, because those were the societies that people began to, to live in. So when there's a big change in society, um, that will lead to a different worldview over time because people get used to seeing things in different ways. Um, but there's also ways in which worldviews can change endogenously through actually starting to come up with new ways of seeing things. And when those begin to show themselves to be successful, as generations move on, people begin to see that in, in a different way. So, for example, the scientific revolution in the 17th century um, was an example of that. Uh, all of a sudden, new ways of thinking arose where people say, you know, we can see things in this different way. And it worked. And they began to develop technology that began to take over other things. And so people bought into this new way of seeing things until now it's become essentially uh, just assumed to be this is the reality. So the implications for right now, you know, many of the people listening to this show will uh, realize that we need a different worldview. We need a worldview that's one that's more sustainable, that's based not on uh, humans being separate from nature or conquering nature or seeing nature as a machine. How do we make that happen? So I believe that this is um, a, a situation where the, the breakdowns that we're beginning to see in the world right now, in the system right now, as a result of climate change, of climate breakdown and disruption, as a result of ecological overshoot, um, as a result of the incredible inequalities we're experiencing. These breakdowns, while they're terrifying, and they are um, things that we need to try to prevent as much as possible, they also are our allies to the extent that they begin to unravel the predominant system. So new generations arise of young people saying, this doesn't work. This worldview that my parents are giving me, that I learned in school, it's just not true. And we're seeing that right now. You're seeing things like um, school children in Australia going on strike um, and uh, refusing to accept what they're being taught because they want to learn about uh, the disaster of climate breakdown and what they need to do uh, about that. And there was this amazing um, talk that I'm sure uh, many people saw given at the COP24 just uh, a couple of weeks ago by, I think her name is Greta Grunveld from Norway, 
a 15 or 16 year old child who's saying, we don't accept this crap that you're giving us. We need, we're going to do things differently. Um, and that is an example of a worldview changing before our eyes. And people like that are looking to what is a different kind of worldview that can really um, give us a sense of hope, give us a sense of meaning going forward. And that's where I feel like the work of um, those of us who are fleshing out what it means to have an ecological civilization are essentially doing um, the, the sort of groundwork for this new generation, offering specifics so that as people begin to reject the old worldview because this society is falling apart and say, we need something in its place, that's the kind of opportunity that's there for them to actually um, find something that's been thought through that's more fully fledged rather than trying to figure it all out for themselves. That's brilliant. You mentioned the breakdown of our dominant systems as sort of urging people to reconsider worldviews. What exactly do you see as the relationship between worldviews and our systems of economics, agriculture, education, and so on? Well, I think that the system, the global economic and cultural system we live in today is really a direct result of that worldview of conquest and domination and exploitation that I was describing before, that sort of Christopher Columbus brought with him when he um, sailed and discovered the, the new world, quote unquote, which of course was already an old world to those who lived in it in 1492. And since then, these, um, that notion of exploitation is everywhere around us. It's uh, formed the basis for um, the sort of neoliberal capitalist doctrine, which says that um, every one of us are these um, individuals out to maximize for themselves. And that's a good thing because if all individuals maximize for themselves, then that leads to the most efficient uh, progress forward and, um, and everyone is happiest. And this is another of these myths that came from that sort of 17th century viewpoint. In fact, individuals, human individuals are not uh, these kind of um, adamantine sort of um, separate maximizers, rational maximizers. Actually, we're community oriented uh, um, people who actually want to be part of a thriving community around us as much as we want to care for ourselves and our own family. And just as important, maybe even more importantly, it led to this notion that nature is there to exploit. So when the Europeans hit, the, um, hit Northern South America, they discovered, say, like this, the greatest silver mine in all the world in Potosí, Bolivia. And they ended up enslaving something like eight, I think eight million indigenous people died over a few centuries in that mountain from mercury poisoning, getting forced to mine out every last tiny little grain of silver from that mountain. So that right now there's not the tiniest grain left. The, you know, the few people like try to find um, uh, some sort of copper that might be around because all the silver is gone. That's the kind of way of thinking that leads now the fossil fuel companies to you know, lie about uh, climate breakdown to the rest of the world and go and do things like tar sands, mineral extraction, or and these create crazy hydro fracking where they like really you know, creating earthquakes, destroying the, the underground water system, they're poisoning the earth just to get some more fossil fuels out when we're already obviously gone way beyond what we can even sustain. 
So this notion of exploitation, we see in that realm, and we see that in the injustice realm, where it's hard to conceive of, but at this point, the six wealthiest men in the world own as much wealth as the entire lower half of the world's population. That's nearly 4 billion people. Because, and because of this incredible um, exploitation, the, the very society we live in is and it's, it's actually unraveling. It's falling apart because you can't maintain any stability in that way. It sounds like what you're talking about are, are values. It's a new set of values, new set of priorities. It's not just some abstract way of understanding the world. It's tied, I mean, this worldview, it's, it's more than just ideas, right? It, it's, yes. it's like it's, it's something more robust. You explained how a sense of, of inter, uh, this intrinsic connectedness can really impact our cognitive frame for example, then leading us to emphasize, let's say, uh, quality of life rather than material possessions. Um, yes. What other core values do you think should be at the foundation of a, a cognitive frame for a new, let's say, non-exploitive uh, kind of form of, of human community that's capable of promoting a more sustainable, equitable, and peaceful world? Yeah, what a great, a great question, Andrew. And I think the one way of looking at it is to... And just look at a real simple distinction between a sense of separateness and a sense of connectedness. You were just mentioning that word. It's like our, our sort of connectedness. And if we look at everything I've just been talking about in a modern, mainstream, global, dominant worldview, it's, it's all based on a sense of separateness. It says humans are separate from the rest of nature. And each human is separate from other human beings. And we're all like these individual maximizers. And, and because of this separateness, all you know, each of us needs to do our own thing for ourselves. And everything is based on that sense of, um, of disconnectedness. Now, if you look at um, early indigenous cultures, and if you look at what modern systems thinkers in um, scientific disciplines are telling us, what, what we actually find is that a core uh, precept about the world is that actually we are all connected. That in fact, as humans, um, we're connected with nature. We're not just connected with nature, we are nature. And this sense of humans being separate from nature is just one of these myths that we've, we've sort of come up with in the last few hundred years. Um, humans are actually, what makes us feel human, what gives us a sense of happiness is that connection with each other. And so it's community that forms the foundation for this new set of values, which is really an ancient set of values that we just have to be rediscovering because the, um, the myth of the last few hundred years have sort of thrown that out along with everything else uh, through that sort, of, that sort of modern worldview of separateness. So we can sort of build from this notion of connectivity and we can look at, and we can even look at it ourselves, and we can, just as individuals, and recognize that we're not these kind of split mind body um, separate organisms, but we're actually integrated as organisms. And we can focus from that on enhancing the quality of our own lives rather than just trying to consume more and um, you know just ha get more stuff for ourselves. We can um, look at our connectivity within community and recognize. Uh, that actually being in community, working with others around us is a core part of our value system. And just as importantly for each of our communities to be recognizing we're part of the world community. 
and that and to sort of uh, focus on what we share with others and not try to ignore the differentiation we have from others, but to recognize that the true integration um, with ourselves and the rest of the human community is to honor um, our differences and recognize that our unity at the same time. So it's like we can sort of notion, see this notion of integration as a sense of like unity plus differentiation, which really gives the richness and flourishing to the world. And similarly, as we look at the natural world, the fundamental value has to come from this recognition that we are nature. And so um, we, we're not like doing stuff to nature. That is so sort of goes beyond just nature itself as intrinsic value, but all of us as nature have intrinsic value. And as humans, we have a particular responsibility because we do have a certain type of intelligence that enables us to be differentiated from things and to uh, develop technology and to have so much power over others, over our non-human relatives, that we have this responsibility to work with them to create a flourishing earth for all of us. Wow, that's beautiful. In several of the things you've mentioned already, uh, like Chinese philosophical notions, right, of, of harmony, you know, you talk about Li, uh, interconnectedness, and something that's happening in China is this shift toward or this call for an ecological civilization. Uh, I know that you also have, have done some writing and speaking about this, this notion of ecological civilization. Can you say a little about what you mean by an ecological civilization and what's distinctive about it? Uh, yes, sure. I think that uh, the idea of an ecological civilization to me is one of the most exciting um, sort of new visions that I, I see around us, which offers, I think, tremendous hope for the long-term future. And, and what I see by um, ecological civilization is really quite simply um, the notion of building a new type of civilization on a different kind of basis than the one we're currently in. So the civilization that we're all in right now, the global civilization is one that is based on these values we've been looking at already in this conversation, a sense of extraction, a sense of exploitation, a sense of human separateness from nature. An ecological civilization by contrast would be one that's based on the principles of ecology. And when we look at what that means, what does ecology mean? It's really the study of um, natural systems that have been around in some cases for millions and millions of years and that remain sustainable. That actually um, where every, things relate to each other in such a way that they don't just exploit what's around and then kind of collapse, but they actually um, use the resources around them in circular ways. So that, for example, the waste products of one organism in an ecology becomes the food and nutrition for another organism. And there's a sense, for example, of um, reciprocity, where and things you can have like sort of mutual, it's a little bit like a mutual aid society where um, one organism gets what it needs from another organism. And while it's doing that, it's actually um, reciprocating back and giving something back to um, that organism so that together things can remain stable. And that, uh, that doesn't mean that um, every organism uh, sort of is nice to everything else around it. Like, you know, some organisms want, need to eat uh, uh, predators to, to others. And so, um, it, but it, it, 
I think what at a profound level, we recognize that the dynamics that causes thing, this whole ecosystem to relate within itself allows for a sustainable flourishing. And maybe most importantly, and that sustainable flourishing happens when each organism in that system is actually optimizing for itself. And by optimizing for itself, it's also optimizing for the rest of the ecosystem around it. So these are some of the principles of ecology that can apply to a whole, basically our civilization going forward. What would that mean? It would mean, for example, that in terms of these incredible inequities we see right now um, in wealth and inequality and people lacking basic things like housing and food and, and being exploited to such an extreme to mint uh, just a few billionaires to take advantage of them. It made a complete shift there because an ecological civilization would be based on the understanding that each person needs to be able to be flourishing in order for the whole system to flourish. So basic things like education, health, housing, work would be a fundamental right to everybody in an ecological civilization. It would mean that rather than extracting resources from the earth, we'd be developing technologies and industries that are circular, um, where we actually um, build into the very engineering of a system and um, the ability to maintain itself. And as we have, as we create waste products, making sure those waste products are something that can be um, nutritional for some other part of an industry or some other system so that everything basically becomes self-sustaining. And those technologies, those ways of looking at things, those ways of doing agriculture are all current. They're all there right now in the world. It's not like we have to come up with something brand new. What we have to do though is um, build a civilization that's based on the principles that right now are carried out in some small isolated places in contrast to the rest of, to what's going on in mainstream civilization. So is this ecological civilization that you just described, is it, is it realistic? I mean, is it an achievable goal or, or is it some unrealistic utopian ideal? Yeah, well, what, what, what a super question. You know, I think maybe another way of, of asking that question is to say this exploitative, growth-oriented, um, incredibly unsustainable economy we're on right now, is that realistic? And the answer is an unequivocal no way. I mean, we're already, we're already consuming the earth 40% more than is sustainable, the whole, the entire earth system. And we're looking at a growth and expectations for our economy to triple um, by the middle of this century. So somehow we're meant to um, be like the, the whole system, the stock market system, the money system, the, the system of, uh, of our economies is based on this notion of like sort of three three percent growth a year in the general economy is like sort of par. If we go below that, then that's a bad thing. We've got a recession coming. And, and, and if we go above that, then wow, we're doing great. And that system is basically is this notion of infinite growth on a finite planet. That is as unrealistic as any magic anyone ever tried to come up with. So what we have to ask ourselves is, what is realistic? And well, one thing that is realistic is this notion that without some alternative system, um, we may be looking at the possibility of a true collapse of civilization in general, which would be the most devastating event to have happened in really all of human history. 
And it's something we need to avoid at all costs. We'd be looking at mega deaths. And there's just no way we can sort of just take that lightly and say, oh, it's a good thing we, we need to collapse. That would be just a disaster. So what that means is that the other alternative we have, the only realistic alternative we have is to try to um, find these way, other ways of being which are already out there and, and, and express them, communicate them, live them, and, and um, expand them in a fast enough way that as this old system unravels in the decades to come, um, at first there'll be thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions, and ultimately hundreds of millions and billions of people shift towards this new way of being because it's the only way of being that actually allows a real flourishing on earth. So I feel um, there is a um, tremendous responsibility that any of us has in this generation who's aware of what's actually going on, because we've got to realize that the stake of, you know, billions of other human beings, the stake of um, so much of the natural world and um, the, the future of so much of Earth, not just in the next few decades and generations, but really for thousands of years into the future are at stake now, depending on what we're able to change in this unsustainable place we're in right now. Yeah, the stakes are high, I think it's fair to say. Um, I mean, we're, we're not talking about a few people here and there suffering or, or some minor issue, right? We're talking about the variability of this planet to sustain life. You know, I think that's something that's hard to even get our heads around until we sort of look at the whole um, history of humanity um, from the very beginning of time. And, you know, as I... As I kind of uh, unravel in this book, The Patterning Instinct, which looks at these different ways in which cultures have made sense of the universe from the earliest human times, what we see is there's really been only two major changes, fundamental changes in the sort of ultimate human experience of life since we were those early nomadic hunter-gatherers. The first was that shift to agriculture about 12,000 years ago, which took a few thousand years to spread from a few places throughout the world, but ultimately changed the experience of almost everyone on Earth. And the second was the scientific revolution that happened beginning in Europe in the 17th century that took in that time no more than maybe a, a couple of hundred years, but has since changed the experience of essentially everybody on Earth almost. And the daunting task, when we, what we realize is that to, to move to a sustainable future, to shift from this exploitative extractive civilization to an ecological civilization would require the third great transition in all of human history. And this one we'd have to do consciously. The other ones happened just um, sort of, they, they kind of took, it was the individual making changes going, wow, this is a great idea. And without realizing it as part of a bigger system, they ended up being part of these great transitions. We need to consciously say, we've got to transition this worldview. And we have to do it in a far shorter time. We just have at most decades, a few decades at very most to make this change. So the responsibilities are daunting, but the opportunities are also quite amazingly exciting. Like because of some of the changes that we have been experiencing in the world today, because of the rise of the internet, for example, 
there is this ability of us all to recognize that we are all connected together. There is a human mind that's beginning to develop. And there is this possibility of some of these changes spreading around the world. We talk about like virally, you know, and I thought memes can spread virally within just a few hours around the world. And so a different worldview has this potential to really impact um, billions of people in an amazingly short time. And um, once it begins to really take off, and once people realize the need for it so pressingly. So there's, there's reason to have hope. Oh, I think there's most definitely reason to have hope. But I think that the, what I, when, when I think about hope, I try to distinguish that from uh, the concepts of sort of optimism or pessimism, shall we say. Because you know, when we look at what at the forces arrayed towards destruction, when we look at the powers of the billionaires, when we look at the, the fact that the transnational corporations essentially have a stranglehold over every global system, economic, political, um, cultural, um, around the world. And their whole basis is to continue to extract more growth from everything around them. It's very, it's very natural to feel very pessimistic about the direction we're headed in. And there's no doubt, you know, when we look at runaway climate breakdown, there's no doubt that we're heading towards very difficult turbulent times with all kinds of um, breakdowns with all kinds of unravelings going on and causing, going to cause massive pain and destruction. So um, I don't want to, um, when we talk about hope, I don't want to give the sense that um, we can look at, uh, with a rosy tinted sort of eyeglass at what's actually happening around us. But I think the one way of thinking about hope is just the simple realization that things in and the natural world happen in nonlinear ways. And we are all connected with what's happening. It's not like we're out there like um, in outer space looking at the earth as this separate entity saying, oh, well, I predict, it's, it's not a spectator sport. It's not like we can sort of predict it'll go that way, it'll go this way. Each of us, in the ways in which we show up each day are actually part of that emerging future that we're talking about. So the notion of hope really arises, we can think of it more like this verb. Um, there's this great saying of like, um, really we can think of hope um, as a, a verb with its sleeves rolled up because we, it's really, what hope is really about is recognizing we don't know what's gonna happen and recognizing that each of us is actually engaged in creating that future and recognizing that if we care, if we care about our families, if we care about our, our grandchildren, if we care about nature all around us that we're part of, um, we have to turn up every day and do what we can do. And um, hope is really just the sort of um, byproduct, if you will, of that way of engaging with the reality we see around us. So you say we got to roll up our sleeves, right? Um, in that unlimited growth on a finite planet is unrealistic. So, so where do we go from here? What do we need to do to begin this great transition toward an ecological civilization? You know, I like to see the sort of path that we can each take in a way of thinking in terms of maybe like three concentric circles. It kind of makes it a little bit easier to get, get your hands around what we need to be looking at. And the, the, the first concentric circle, we can just be basically within the circle of ourselves. And... For just within ourselves as, as an individual making sense of all this, one thing we can do is actually look at these cultural patterns 
that uh, patterns of thought, patterns of behavior that we're all part of, that we've grown up to be part of, and understand them a bit, a bit better, and recognize when we ourselves are engaging in destructive actions and around us, recognize that we are part of these bigger systems, and that the things that we do, then the changes we make in our own values, changes in our diets, changes in how we relate to others around us, maybe others who are not socially as powerful as we are, and changes in how we, um, how we um, show up in the world. That's one thing we can do in ourselves that can make a difference. And that, so that's one concentric circle. The next concentric circle we can think of as our community and basically being part of those around us who are actually already living into that emerging future that's possible. And so it can be, again, it can be as simple as stuff as um, helping people who are working in cooperatives, who are trying to actually change the ways in which we produce the goods that we eat or that we use, um, or people who are coming up with alternative social structures in our community, but really realizing that we, we need to start, we need to transform our communities ourselves. If you live in a place where there's a, a transition town, like getting involved in the things that are being done to actually start to live as a community in this way of an ecological civilization, the way we know we all need to ultimately live if we're going to be sustainable. So that's the second concentric circle. But then there's that third concentric circle of the, the global power structures. And making changes in our own behavior, making changes in our community's behavior is nothing without also engaging in these global power systems that are going on that are destroying the world and destroying human um, thriving all the time. So we have to engage in, unpleasant as it, as it is to most of us, engage in the political process, get in the sort of um, the, the weeds of the, um, the actual party politics. We have to engage in um, organizations that are trying to do things around climate change. We have to show up and actually make a difference to these big political processes around us, stay informed and, um, and be part of these, of these bigger groupings. And when we do that, something really kind of um, helpful happens is we begin to realize that we're not alone in facing the enormity of everything around us. And we can get to feel a bit more empowered because we get to see, well, actually, I'm just, you know, I can do my thing. And there's all these millions and millions of people around us doing their thing. And together, we can actually make a difference. Yeah, I think these, these concentric circles, this, this notion of concentric circles is really, really helpful especially since there are, are many people listening at home that care about the environment, they care about equality, they care about systemic injustices, uh, they care about the common good, but then they're sort of lost by all this paradigm and worldview talk. And um, yes, so this idea of these multiple spheres of influence and what we can do individually and how it is connected to these communities of communities and, and layers of civilization and uh, how we as individuals can be a part of civilizational change. That seems really important for there to, to be a, a shift, you know, a move of the needle. I think that that is, that is what it's all about. I mean, in real simple terms, you know, as you say, there's a, a lot of sort of big abstract concepts going around maybe in our conversation, but in the end, all anyone needs to remember is the simple fact that everything is connected. And just do all that we do on that basis. And in a way, just that very realization of the connectivity between everything 
that's just another a way of describing love is this realization of this profound connectivity, you know, and just the embodied experience of being connected is really just another way of looking at the sense of harmony, of being in harmony with everything around us. And that um, deep sense of connection, that can inform everything. And so we know, you know, I know when I go to the store and I buy a brand new piece of clothing um, at some ridiculously, you know, low price, and that's connected. That's connected with the fact that people um, in Southeast Asia are being uh, living like virtual slaves, um, you know, using um, materials that have been extracted from the earth in order to create this like throwaway consumer society that is that is actually helping to end up, you know, leaving so much plastic in the ocean that by the middle of the century, there'll be more plastic than fish in the ocean. And realizing those connections can be daunting and can be a little bit uh, um, foreboding when you look at that, but also that sense of connectedness works the other way. You realize that the small acts of kindness we do, the small things that we do in our lives to make things, to change things, actually also has this massive um, reverberatory effect throughout everything. So if I, um, as a meat eater, you know, choose to say, well, you know, I get it. Beef actually is totally unsustainable. It's a big impact on um, increasing greenhouse gases, is devouring massive, massive amounts of forests in the world through this, you know, crazy soybean production to feed the cows. So I'm not, maybe I'm not ready to go vegan or vegetarian, but I said, okay, maybe if I was eating meat, if eating beef like, you know, twice a week, maybe I'll cut it down to once a week, maybe even try to move to once a month. And it seems like so little, but if you're connected with that system and if billions of people are doing that, that can transform the world uh, in, in huge ways that we don't even realize. So everybody needs to stay informed. They need to stay woke uh, as the millennials say. We covered a whole lot in this conversation. I really appreciate it. You're so brilliant in taking complex issues and making them understandable. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, thanks. You know, I think that maybe just the one other thing I'd add to what we've been talking about before in terms of um, what can people do and how we can, and this notion of realizing everything is connected in these concentric circles of how we can engage is um, many people who, you know, who care enough to listen to this podcast are already involved in something that, you know, each of us feels is really important and the most important thing we can be doing right now to make, make this or that change. And the one thing I'd add to really encourage people to do is as much as you care about what you're doing and it feels like the solution, um, to really look at what those others around you are doing and see if you can really have this intention to each day spend some of your time to lift up and amplify the amazing work that others around you are doing and as much as you want them to amplify your work. Because it's only by that sense of um, reciprocal amplification that as a connected network, we will have the effect that we need to transform things in the speed and the magnitude that's really needed. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time and for your insights. It has been wonderful talking with you. You're welcome. It's been, it's been great talking with you, Andrew. And, um, and thank you for all the great work that you're doing in, in the eco-civil organization, which I think is, is just, a, just a wonderful light in the dark right now. So thanks. Mm-hmm.